Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Do you ever wonder if you're on the right path in life? Have you ever wanted to ditch the American dream so you could live on some remote tropical island? And how are we making life more difficult than it already is? Author and world's most interesting man nominee, Jamal Yogis, is back to talk about seeking, escaping, and finding the answers to life's big questions. Welcome to The New Man. Today we're talking with Jamal Yogis. Uh, he's the author of several books, including The Saltwater Buddha and The Fear Project. He's written for ESPN, the magazine, as well as many other publications. He's got a great new book out called All Our Waves Are Water, Stumbling Toward Enlightenment and the Perfect Ride. You can learn more by, about him by visiting jamalyogis.com. Welcome back to the show, Jamal. Thanks, Trip. It's good to be here. Yeah, and I want to congratulate you on the new book. I loved it. Uh, I sent you an email while I was reading it. I was, I was digging it so much. I, I, I love that it was a blend of just being a really great page-turning, entertaining read, but man, there's a, just a lot of great wisdom in there. I was really fed by it, so I'm, I'm digging it. Congratulations. It means a lot coming from you. I know you read a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> I get a lot of them, that's for sure. <laughs> It covers quite a bit of the trek that your life has been on. Um, just for instance, like as a teenager, you left home, you ran away to Hawaii, you nursed a broken heart and practiced meditation in the Himalayas, you set off to get barreled surfing reef breaks in Indonesia, you tried to find, find bliss on the beaches of Mexico, you did the college thing in New York, and then the professional hustle in D.C. As a journalist, you dealt with extremists in the Middle East, and now... Now, currently, you're living the family life with your wife and three young boys in San Francisco. But that's just the tip. I mean, the book goes into quite a lot about your journey and, and, and the amazing people you've met along the way. I can imagine somebody looking at these adventures and just going, what the hell? I mean, is this guy seeking something or is he running away from something or both? What's your hit on that? I, you know, I think all of the above. And I'll just say, you know, the family life with three kids is definitely the most intense extreme sport of any of them <laughs> I've ever done. <laughs> 
which um, <laughs> you can probably relate to as a dad. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think um, I certainly was running away from something when I ran away from home at 16. And I was, you know, I was, as you know, uh, I, was, I was on probation for a DUI. My parents had divorced. I was both kind of dissatisfied with the drama and popularity of, of contest of high school and also critical of myself for really being caught up in it, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? And, uh, and then I was also, I wasn't the bad kid trip. I was the one to get caught a lot. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I don't know if I was yearning for something different, maybe unconsciously trying to get caught just to get out of Dodge, but you know, it was a, a series of things where I didn't understand the emotions that were coming through about my parents' divorce. I didn't understand why I was felt like I was in this, um, downward spiral with getting into trouble and, but I, I bounced, as you know, to, to Maui, one-way ticket. And I was running away from something there. But I think sometimes you got to run away or just break the cycle of, of the normal routine. You know, I was in Americana, suburbia, and I just needed to break that to, I think, begin to have the space to inquire about, you know, the big questions. Mm-hmm. Why am I here? What's the point? What is true contentment, happiness, et cetera? And those are the questions I've just continued to ask myself through the various lenses that we use. And I think I took on writing because you get to pick up different lenses mm-hmm. um, and get to, you know, sometimes I'm the journalist uh, getting to interview people like you do and you get to live their life a little bit. And sometimes, you know, I, I write memoir because I want to look back at those experiences I've had and say, uh, what did that mean? You know, let me make sense of this of this kind of chaos that life feels like sometimes. Yeah, it seems like there was uh, on on one hand you would go deeply down this spiritual path, and then the next thing you know, you're you're really going deeply into like, okay, I'm going to kick ass as a professional. It, it seemed like it was tearing you apart for a while, but you somehow made peace with that. Is that is that safe to say? Yeah, it's safe to say. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think. Um, the reason I've had to write these memoirs, which I never planned on doing was, so as I was talking about, ran away from, from home in high school to, to serve in Maui, ended up coming back, finishing high school. And then, uh, when my dad came to get me and then I went to live in a Zen monastery for a year after high school, I was really, uh, infatuated with this notion that you could find peace inside yourself and hop off the hamster wheel. And, so I really thought at 19 that I was going to be a monk. And that's a pretty intense experience to go into a monastery for a year and cut yourself off from the world completely. Like, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of silence, no relationships, no, I wasn't seeing myself on a career path at all. It was like, I was going to do the monk thing. You do it for life. When I decided not to do that and try college and, um, you dive back into the world and it's intense. It's like, you know, shock therapy or something like yeah. you're, it's so different. And yet I felt like I picked up some wisdom in the, in these meditate, in this meditation school. And I wanted to integrate it. You know, the reason the new book is called all our ways are water is that, and then you're really looking at the fact that the sort of the nature of enlightenment and the nature of awareness is in all things. Like you can't, it's not just in the monastery. It's also at the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And so how to find that? how to find that in the word and bustle. And, um, yeah, it's challenging. 
it's challenging because we get, you go in, you know, we live in a society that's told succeed, succeed, succeed at all costs. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be your happiness where I knew, and I at least I had an inkling that there was something bigger, a bigger freedom that you could find inside. And yet I'd chosen to live in the world. And so, you know, it was just trial and error and a lot of falling on my face. And I think because the falling on the face <laughs> was often the biggest lesson, not getting my grammar right there, but you get my point. I get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wrote some of these books to kind of to uh, to reflect on you know on that process because it isn't easy to sort of be a an urban monk so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and you know I think there's this there's this sense that we can go through life and if things are difficult, well I must be on the wrong path. I hear that sometimes, like or if things are difficult, then I must not be getting it right. And and your book seems to head off these things directly, right? This idea that we can ever be on the wrong path or that we can be doing things incorrectly. Like for instance, you know, in our culture, we've got this idea that there's a, there's a four hour work week and that's the thing that's going to make us happy to live on the beach and eat tacos and surf great waves and sleep with a beautiful woman every night. Well, you did this, you did this for a while while you were in Mexico, you had some version of this and something was there that kept you from enjoying it. I mean, what happened to you and what spoiled the fun for you when you were in that part of the path, so, so to speak? Well, I think, um, <laughs> so yeah, that's a story about, um, I, I'd, uh, I just finished up college, met myself for a, a, a new woman. We headed to Mexico. I was surfing these great ways. And I had a few months before grad school just to, to chill like that. And it wasn't that I had a bad time. I mean, that was a great trip, but what I write about in that, those chapters is really, you know, oftentimes when you have the perfect conditions around you, um, but you don't yet have full sort of awareness yet or self-acceptance or, you know, enlightenment, for lack of a better word, you, you realize it's almost like the perfect conditions around you can point you to the fact that you're still stewing inside. <laughs> you know, you like, like you get to that, uh, you know, seventh day at the Ritz and you're just like, everything that goes wrong in your own mind can feel like a bigger deal because the conditions outside are like, well, look, I have it all. I have what I want. So why, you know, why, right. the, why the angst? Right. Why I've got and, everything. Um, What's wrong with me now? Right. Exactly. And I think ultimately those experiences are really good lessons because you, it points you back to the fact that it's not all about the external. You can get all your ducks in a row. You can have the perfect job or be following your passion. You can have the quote right partner. And I think nobody, you know, every partner you find will, you know, you'll find flaws in each other. So those external circumstances are never going to be, they're never going to line up. It's never going to be like game over. It's all easy now. Mm -hmm. And even when you get close to that, sometimes it, it, you know, it be the internal angst becomes even more intense. These, it's like an opportunity for those things to arise. We thrive off of, we learn from having to use our, our full potential. And so sometimes, you know, chilling on the beach for three months, eating tacos, it's like you can start to also feel like maybe there's a little more for me out there. Um, and uh, to grow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We like that challenge. I think, I think without it, that we, start to stagnate. And, uh, I know for me, I, I, I spent a month in Hawaii one time and I, I think about a week and a half in, I started looking for something to break, man. I needed, I needed something to fix. You know? <laughs> it's just like, I'm going to go nuts here. So, uh, yeah, I can, I can completely, completely appreciate that. Um, I, you know, another expectation that we get, especially if, if I'm 
you know, being in personal development, coaching people in that realm, I meet people who unconsciously believe that the only reason why their life is challenging is because they're not doing something correctly. They believe that if they just learn how to do X, Y, Z better, then it'll be a smooth ride. And in the book, you go over how the Buddha talked about dukkha. Um, tell us a bit about what dukkha means. Yeah, um, dukkha is often translated as uh, suffering, but it's sort of a, a maybe a mistranslation. The Buddha's first noble truth that he spoke about after his enlightenment was that life is dukkha. Life is, is suffering. But if you look back to the origin of the word, it actually means an axle that doesn't fit into a wheel correctly. <laughs> so what, what the Buddha seems to be have, have been getting at was that life is a bumpy ride. And, and that no matter rich or poor, we believe in a, uh, we have attachments, we have desires, and those um, attachments and desires are bound to let us down. There's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. And so that you just have to expect that. He also said, following that, that there's a way out of this situation. And the way out of the situation is through practicing mindfulness. You know, and I, I think that expectation, I think, I think we live in this sort of fairy tale often, and I fall into this a lot as well, where you're working hard and you you kind of think that, that there's going to be, uh, once you get to a certain point, it's going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And that expectation sets us up for a lot more suffering <laughs> because yeah. it's like, I've been working hard, man, 20 years. And it's like, it's still not easy. You know, there's always, it's like the next thing comes up, whether it's your own personal health, like, you know, losing a loved one. Sometimes your job's doing great, but something else, you know, the car's breaking down. It's like, it's always, it's always imperfect. Yeah. And, and yet it's those struggles that are one juxtapose, uh, the, the high moments and, and allow us to feel the joys, but also, as we were talking about, it's often those challenges where, where we really turned on to our full potential or we're able to feel compassion for somebody else. So I think expecting, expecting that life is going to be challenging is sort of like the first step, I think, toward what the Buddha was talking about, where this dukkha or samsara, the cycle of suffering, can actually be the nirvana. Right. Well, I, I, you know, I'm familiar with this, this first noble truth about, you know, that, that life is suffering. But this 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 different interpretation of it, and that it, life is bumpy, what, just something it just it was such a like it just hit me in the gut like oh that makes a lot more, it just something just made it feel a lot more uh, grounded like I just got that a lot easier and I realized that what causes the suffering is that expectation that everything should be smoother once I get to this point in my life and I'm making X amount or I've done this and then then it'll smooth out like I'm I'm noticing that I'm waiting for life to get smooth. And that, when, when someone thinks they're bumpy, that's what creates the suffering. It's like, oh, man, are you kidding me? It's bumpy again? Um, and so I, I just like how it's like, what, what if we just go in and we understand, like, yeah, shit's going to be bumpy. Like, it just, this is just how life is. It's got it. It's just the axle just doesn't quite fit in the wheel quite right. And let go of it. Like, there you go. Like, you, then you'll find, you'll find your peace in that if you, if you can just start to learn how to accept that. I just, I, but I find that I'm most miserable when I'm unwilling to accept that life's going to be bumpy. And so I just love that interpretation. I thought that was powerful. Yeah, so much is lost in translation. Um, and I was I was pretty, um, that, that different translation helped me a lot too. And I'll just tack on to that, that, you know, there's a great surfing metaphor in that because it's like, well, you know, it's not fun to surf if you don't have the bumps. And sometimes the sea is stormy, uh, you know, and, and, and those days are rough. 
but it, you know, it's going to get calm again. So it's kind of, I guess it's the bumps can also be fun. Yeah. Uh, metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I used to have those days. Where I was like, God, it's blown again, man. It's just blown. It's just blown. It's like, well, that's what, that's what makes the swell. So, you know, deal with it. Yeah. Part of it. <laughs> You, you talked about mindfulness a, a minute ago. Uh, and one of the other things that you brought up in the book, you brought up this story that the Buddha tells about what happens when we're shot with an arrow. And he says, I'm going to paraphrase what you wrote, but that the run-of-the-mill person, when he gets shot, he sorrows and he grieves and he laments, he beats his breast, he becomes distraught. He feels two pains, not just the physical one, but the mental one as well. He feels the pains of two arrows. And so, but the person who's trained in mindfulness, when, when that person's shot with an arrow, he feels only the physical pain. He doesn't add some kind of a story to it. He doesn't make it about him or how life's unfair or wonder why life has been so hard to him. Uh, the bottom line is that life hurts. Of course it hurts, but we don't need to add to that pain. Just how, how, how do you see us or how do you add pain to your own life? Like, let's just go into that because I, I, don't, I don't know if people realize that what we're experiencing is most of the time isn't the, so much the pain of the situation, but the shit that we're adding on top of it. Oh man, it's just, you know, side a nickel for every time I found myself um, <laughs> spinning my wheels about this. I can get into a thing where on, on the weekends when the kids are just moody and, you know, they're throwing tantrums. My wife wanted to have more children <laughs> than I did. I was like good at two, you know, I, I was like, I, I come from a family of, 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 you know, I have one sibling. I was like four at the round number. Now we have three, right? She came from three and she's like, we can do it. But then when it's like, so I'll start getting in this time, like, did this to me. <laughs> you, know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, and it's like, I can even laugh at myself in the moment of like, that's ridiculous. You know, you, you were, you were part of this as well. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> take some responsibility but it's funny how we want to you know it's hard when you're three-year-old a developmental psychologist has told me that three-year-olds have basically the brain structure of a sociopath and so they can just go on <laughs> when they're having a hard day you know? it just makes no sense and you can try all different angles and you're just like this is still hard and yet you know if i can kind of take so when I'm in the funk and I'm like complaining about it, you know, I use little tricks like trying to take a meta perspective of just what one, look at my life on the whole, like be grateful. You're going to look back on this and say, these were the days, you know, mm. and like it was so full and you know, now they're teenagers and they don't want to even see their dad. <laughs> so mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you can play some little games like, like that with yourself. But I find like gratitude for the things I have can, really turn that around and then also accepting the fact that you're not beating myself up for being a complainer like i'm complaining about this in my head it's hard and then i'll basically add the second arrow of like and you shouldn't be complaining about right. this <laughs> you know? right yeah that's what um, creates the spiral of you dick oh look at you being a dick to yourself oh there you go again you're being a, you know like just oh man just piles on Right. It's like the third arrow. And really the first arrow is the initial thing like, hey, your three-year-old's having a tantrum. You're tired too. You know, leave it at that. It's like, okay, this is expect this is all expected part of life. Right. What did you, you, you wrote something in the book about uh, how one of them was, you know, like you said, the last time you were angry was this morning when one of them tried to put the other one in the toilet or something and <laughs> just left out. <laughs> like, okay, there's the first pain, right? <laughs> right. But it's amazing. I mean, when I've, when I've been, say when I get off of a mindfulness retreat and I've been, I've cleared through the cobwebs a little bit and I'm more responding to just things as they are, 
it's like, oh, one kid is hitting the other. I say like, hey guys, stop hitting. You know, you don't like to be hit. And there's just not as much emotion in it. And then once the cobwebs build up and it's more about me and how <laughs> I'm feeling, it's like, hey, you guys, like, right. you know, um, what is with you? You know, it's like I'm adding all of this other like emotion that's about my fatigue and my thing that's, you know, where I just want to be, you know, go out for a surf. And it's, uh, you know, we add a lot and take it out on each other, which then adds third and fourth and fifth arrows. And, you know, so when you go back to your practice and you just breathe and it's like, then you can get a little closer to just saying, okay, it's painful, you know, a big deal, you know? Well, I like that you brought in the practice there because there's, that's that element where most guys are like, oh, I can't get to that because I got all these things to do. They don't realize that the practice is what helps them show up most powerfully, no matter what they're committed to, whether it's family or their profession or whatever it is. There's this thing like, yeah, I can't, I can't do this other thing that actually has me show up best in the world yet. And so they don't see that they become a liability to themselves or their family or whatever when they, when they put their practice on the back burner or they just forget it all together. So I'm glad you brought that in to help us see like, oh yeah, if I'm really committed to being a great father, a great husband, or a great, you know, whatever it is that I do in the world, then I put my practice first because that's going to take, you know, my shit out of the way. Essentially, I'm going to be lowering that, you know, that probability. Um, it's just another reminder how important that is. Yeah, I think that's well put because, it's usually when we're most uh, busy and feeling like we can't take that time that then, you know, you're trying to check all the boxes, but you start losing the ability to one prioritize and just see things clearly, but two, you can be adding a lot of unnecessary tasks that happen through unnecessary reactions because again, it's like, you're adding the second and third arrows. And so I, I find, or you start, you know, you get in, embroiled in an emotional drama at work or something, political thing where you don't, you don't necessarily need to. Mm. And it's like the practice is what allows you to just be like, okay, you know, not important. This that's isn't, not this essential, isn't the work. not important. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't it. Most of us get in this, this downward spiral once we start to compare ourselves to others. Right. And, and nowadays everybody's putting their highlight reel online with uh, whatever Facebook or Instagram or whatever kind of bullshit we've got out there. Um, it's not all bullshit, but it's just easy to, to project this air of where, oh man, I'm not doing as much as this guy. I'm falling behind that person. I should be doing more in my life. You were working on your first book. You were getting ready to send it off to your to the publisher or your editor, and you you found this other, this other you started comparing yourself to this other author. And uh, well, tell us what happened then. You know, I was about 26 and didn't really think I would be working on a book at that point. And it was my first book. And so, you know, I basically, I'd spent better part of a year just, you know, losing money, pouring my heart out on the page, (laughs) you know, ready to send it in. I'd actually gotten the okay from the publisher that, you know, just make some small changes. And in the process, I basically, I picked up a really renowned author, this guy, Tim Winton, um, from Australia, who's, you know, won every accolade there is in the literary world. But he has he has a very different style, you know, it's like he has a different voice, he's a different human being. But I instantly got into that, I got triggered, you know, same way you can get triggered on Facebook being like, hey, you know, it's like Joe from high school, <laughs> he's got a lot of likes on his face, you know, it's mm-hmm. like all of a sudden you're dissatisfied with what a second ago seemed just fine, you right. know. 
and nothing, you know, once you're emotionally triggered like that, it can, uh, it can trigger a bunch of other insecurities and you're not really sure like where the original, uh, where all this emotion is coming from. But in my case, I, I couldn't recognize that I was triggered. I just saw that I needed to change my book a lot. And I actually went in and basically rewrote the book. And this was after the editor said it was good. Like they were happy with how it was. <laughs> and then you decided, no, no, yeah. no, I need to rewrite it. So it sounds more like this other guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, it wasn't, that wasn't my process of like, I need to get back to him, but it was like, I needed to be better. I needed to mm. be, uh, and what I, but because it was the insecurity driving it, what ended up happening was I wrote a draft that did it lost power because it wasn't here. Was I, I'd poured my heart out of the page. I'd written something authentic. And then I was basically trying to hide in a way from mm. stacking up, uh, you know, different types of sentence structures or a more cynical worldview that I thought would be accepted by, you know, the literary reviewers. It was just, it was hiding. And it's, you know, it's something that I think we all do in just basic communication. We can we can try to be someone else because we we see someone else's style or, or voice getting accepted by the zeitgeist. And anyway, I didn't know I was doing that. Sent it in, um, and I was feeling like this is really going to knock their socks off. And they were just like, "We don't, you know, this doesn't feel like you. Like, what happened?" Basically. Right. And I went through a pretty intense period where I said, you know, I was going to quit writing. I told them. I'm giving back the advance. I'm not going to publish the book. And, uh, and so that rolled on for a few months until, uh, and what, what basically happened, I don't want to give away that like the whole story, but what basically happened was I had to sort of a series of, of friends, you know, reminding me of things, uh, pick up the manuscript and read it as if I was picking it up at the store and it wasn't mine. Mm. And so to really look at, because we're often so much more judgmental of ourselves, mm. you know, than we would be if someone else, like someone else might be going through some drama um, or feeling, you know, maybe they got a bad review or something. And you're just like, Hey, well, Hey man, you know, I know you, this isn't, this isn't a big deal. You know, this is a, a blip on the, in the big picture. But when it's about us, we're like, no man, it's really <laughs> matters. This is so My important. Life is over. And, uh, <laughs> and so you know, I just needed that distance. I needed to, you know, when you've been in a book that long, it can be like a bad relationship and you just need to take some time apart. And I came back and I read it and I was like, Hey, if I was coming to this book as, you know, Jeff Schmo at the store, I picked this up. I might not say it's going to win a Pulitzer, but this is a good book. <laughs> you know, cool. he did. I picked up the original version. I should say the one that was pre-changed. And then I finally, uh, you know, thankfully went back to the publisher and I said, Hey, you know, you guys were right. <laughs> Good. That original version was better. Well, I like that you named it for what it was. It was just hiding, you know, here you are, you're this close to the finish line. You're this close to putting yourself out there. That's the vulnerable process. This is where the dream can be destroyed. Right. Or, you know, that's what our mind thinks. Uh, it's a lot easier to be a legend in your own mind, you know, instead of actually putting stuff out there and seeing how it actually works. And, and that we'll find, I think resistance is, is so profound and how seductive it is to find a reason to hold back, you know, well, it needs to be more of this, it needs to be less that instead of like, well, here's my voice and this is the book and I'm putting it out and, and then I'll write the next one. Um, and so I just, I just wonder like for write, you know, most authors that are, that are wanting to write a book and just have it magically sell and let the awards and the money and the fame roll in, 
um, they want to avoid that process. And I'm curious what's going on for you now as you're releasing this book. What's life like for you now? You know, talking in this book, talking about equanimity and talking about expectations. And then, you know, are you immune from this these days or, or how does it show up for you as you're getting ready to roll this book out? Yeah. Well, since I'm enlightened now, I don't feel you know, <laughs> jealousy. <laughs> That's the next book, right? How to uh, 10 bucks and you can right. be enlightened too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come to my weekend retreat. It's only 15,000 bucks. Um, writing that story and this is part of why I think I do this these books is like I remind myself that mm. I went through that because I'm, I know I'm going to go through it again yeah. um, now I've been able to recognize my cycle like I came out with a fear project I basically I realized that once when I'm editing you know writing a book is hard and you kind of wanting to get to the finish line and so like your editor's giving you feedback and then putting it together and you're basically like yes okay I think I'm there and then you know, you dot the I's and cross the T's and then it's coming out. I realized when I get to that point where I can't change it anymore and it's coming out, then if I go back and read it, I all of a sudden will see everything that's wrong with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And I'll basically be like, because you're on lockdown now, like the book's coming out mm-hmm. and um, I'll just be, I'll, I'll go into the harshest critic mode and I'll just say, this is, this is awful. Why did I do, you know, why didn't I not see all these things wrong right. with it? And of course, you know, no book is perfect. Nothing you do, everything could always be tweaked, made a little different, you know? And so with the fear project that started happening again, and I was really hard on myself, but I can start to recognize the pattern. And here, you know, I am coming out with this book. Sure enough, I mean, the same emotions come up and you just get a little better at recognizing it's like the bumps become a little smaller. So you can, you catch yourself. You're like, ah, I'm not going to fall for that story. Like I've been down that road. The first time it took me three months, the second time it took me a month. And now it's like, now I can kind of see it arise as it comes. In this book, I think because my dad was dying while I was writing it, I had this perspective of like, we don't have forever. Hmm. You don't want to be on your deathbed saying, you know, I hedged. I I didn't put it, I didn't lay it all on the line. You know, I didn't leave it all on the court. Um, so with this book, I, I, I pushed myself to do that, to not wear a mask. And so I, I think because of that, I feel less of that. Like, I, of course I want it to do well. I want it to be loved, but if it isn't, I think I feel like I said my piece right. um, and I can feel good about that. There is a satisfaction in that of like, okay, especially if you've got kids, right? Like, it's just like, all right, this, they're going to read this one day, perhaps when I'm gone. What do I want them to read? What do I want them to remember? Like, oh, this was dad's work. This is what he cared about. And instead of like, oh, look at all the research dad did. Um, right. I, that's the game that I play with myself, you know, when, I, when I'm wanting to hide or I'm wanting to uh, hold back or whatever it might be. I just, I just tap into that and and it helps me. It helps me get out of my own way. It also helps to just remember good enough is good enough. And that this is going to be one of 1000 things that I'm going to do. And I'm, we're not talking about just writing a book here. This is anything that we really want to do. That's outside of our comfort zone. Um, uh, just letting go of this thing that it's got to be perfect and it's got to be just right and safe and certain before we jump in. I just, uh, I just see this over and over again where good enough is good enough and and then keep going just keep putting one foot in front of the other and you'll get better as you go and and this process is still challenging but you start to learn the game you get a little bit better at it as you go yeah 
I think that's really well put. Um, you know, they're all it's kind of lily pads, and perfect can be the enemy of the good. And and uh, you're going to get criticized. You know, if you're doing something that takes risks, and, and where you're, you know, there's potential for failure. That's where it's scary, and that's where also you leave yourself open to get criticized, and you will. But I I like to go back and and look at all the like brilliant books or pieces of music or something that just got torn apart right. <laughs> by critics. Right. You know, just you know, you can go back from Leaves of Grass to you know where the wild things are, and just read these reviews. It's like I love this one of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. It's like you know, it's no. It's, it's it's no fault of Whitman's that he that he wrote this book, but it is his fault for not burning it and committing suicide <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> it's just like oh. you know, this is one of our great and so it's like people are gonna say shit. You know, yeah. they're gonna they're gonna say this is, you know, go home, nice try. And um and that's okay. You just gotta be ready. Well it's like you said, how do you wanna play, right? Oh, well, at least I avoided making, you know, getting a bad review from that guy. Like, is that really what you want to say on your deathbed? It's like, I, I don't, right. I don't want to, I don't want to play the game of life to avoid a possible snarky remark from somebody. It's just too short. And, um, right. gosh, you reminded me, I'm reading the Robert Plants, uh, from Led Zeppelin, his, his biography right now. And just like, they were, they were like playing and people just didn't get it early on. It's like, how did you go see that band and not? freaking get it they were so powerful it's like they didn't get it like it just was like so what so you know it's just yeah. you know you think they come out of the gate and it just set everything on fire and it didn't um so i just I just appreciate that i mean and i know this you can even start to forget yourself like how much hustle it took to get to where you are you can be like you know we, we have a sort of revisionist history where we're like oh well, now it's kind of hard for me but look at that you know success that i had when I was 25 or whatever. And then you're like, no, actually there was a lot of steps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can kind of glaze over the fact, like my wife does when she's talking about having a third child, she's like, it hasn't been that hard. And I was like, no, remember everything. <laughs> <laughs> actually, yeah. But uh, anyway, for the record, I'm very glad that we yeah, um, I get it. I get it. I remember reading, like, I was going through like a dark night of the soul for several years. And I remember reading some book and this guy alluded to it like, yeah. And then for the next years, I went through the darkest period of my life. Next chapter. He just, he just, I was like, I needed, I need that. Like, what did you do? How did you get through that? And he just, he was like, yeah, but that was 30 years ago. I don't, I can't remember that. And I was like, oh God, I need, I need that story. That would help me. And, uh, and even now when I look back on that period, like I just gloss over it. Um, it's easy to, it's easy to just gloss over that stuff. As you said, we revise our history. So, um, I, I love this book we're just, I mean, if you're listening, we're just scratching the surface of, of all the cool stories and the, and the great wisdom in here. Uh, Jamal Yogi's all our waves are water stumbling toward enlightenment and the perfect ride. You're on a book tour right now. Where can we come see you? See you. Tell us about where you're going to be. I'm going to be up and down the, the East and West coast in July. Um, at a bunch of my favorite bookstores, you know, Powell's, uh, Book Passage, Warwick's in San Diego, and then over by you um, on the East Coast in, in Charlotte and New York and Orlando. And so, yeah, you can go on my website, jamalyogas.com, to see the, the date. Beautiful. Excited about that. All right. All our waves are water. Go get it. Um, I loved it. Thanks so much. And uh, looking forward to the next one, man. Thanks, Chip. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.